0: Bill here with a special introduction for this episode. First, this is the season one finale, but it is actually part one of the season one finale. Brian Ryback and I had such a great conversation that it stretched for nearly two hours. In the interest of keeping your interest, I'm splitting it into two parts so you can enjoy it over the next few weeks. I'm already hard at work at season two. If you're a business owner or know someone who is, please send them my way. Booking guests is by far the hardest part of this endeavor. Uh, No more introduction. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Don't Wait, Leap. Uh, I am here this morning with my guest, Brian Ryback of Labrador Connect. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for being on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Looking forward to it. Uh, Great. Well, uh, for those of you who've been paying attention, sometimes the people I've known a really long time, others that I've just met, and Brian is in that latter latter category. Uh, We've known each other for about 15 minutes now, so this (laughs) is going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Uh, So, Brian, let's get right into it. Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in Rockland County, right across the border there and into New York. Um, I was born in New City uh, and in 8th grade, moved with my family up to North Rockland, uh, Haverstraw area right on the water, and uh, was there all the way through into college. So why did you guys move? We moved... I think a big part of it was wanting to go to a different uh, a district. Okay. I have to ask my mom and dad that question to be honest <laughs> with you. I don't think I even know. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me uh, it, it, as far as um, putting me in the right direction in school. I decided that when I got to North Rockland, it was very like you know, team rah-rah kind of feel. And where I'd come from really wasn't. And so I immediately joined football and, you know, uh, I, I, won an award in track for being the fastest guy in the team. Um, and I also, and were won... you,
0: were you fast or the team slow? I think
1: the team was slow, <laughs> but, but I also always joked that I got the most improved award, which is like, oh, that's great. So I sucked originally and then I uh, wound up being mediocre. So that's fantastic. Uh, but no, that was a lot of fun. And so I got, you know, involved in, in that and, you know, would watch as my parents would turn away as, you know, my, uh, helmet would be crashed on the field but i had a blast and it was really an amazing thing and i, I was also um, in theater in high school and did all of those things and i think really had played a, a an integral role in my development as a public speaker and my comfort comfort with people i've only known 15 minutes and anybody else <laughs> yeah but the uh, i think the, the big thing also was when i was 15 i i had to get working papers because if you're under 16 you can't work unless you get working papers from your school. I was so driven to work immediately. I got my working papers and I went to Sears in uh, Rockland County, there in Nanuet. Mm-hmm. Got my first job, and actually, I worked in orchards for two days before that. But that's a different story. Well, <laughs> okay, well, let's, 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 let's dig into that. So, okay,
0: so you, there's a lot in there to so, unwind. Sure. Okay, let's let's start with the work part. So, an orchard for two days. Orchard for two days. Did you get fired? Did you quit? Did you,
1: I, I literally was in the parking lots telling people where to park for uh, apple picking. And I was like, what am I doing? This is so pointless and boring. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. So that was really, I kind of went to the, the boss and I mean this punk 15 year old kid, you know, and I said, is there something I could do that like has some value to it or something? <laughs> Not that uh, directing traffic has no value. I, I see that as a, a young parent that there's tremendous value in that. But as mm-hmm. a 15 year old, no. Okay. So, so you um, wanted to add
0: value. The uh, yeah. boss said, you know, she, Yeah, she kind of looking at me and said, cars, yeah. Go
1: take some cider donuts and go. So <laughs> that's the <laughs> end of that. It.
0: <laughs> it's not a big, uh, bad package on the way out the door, you know. Not bad at all. Lot, not bad at all. A lot get less. <laughs> all right, so now you go to Sears.
1: I go to Sears, and what was really interesting is, today when, when, when young professionals ask me the best advice I could give them, I always say, go work in a retail store for a year, and then come out and do whatever else. Because... You are going to learn more in a year of interacting with pissed off customers, happy customers, elderly customers, young customers. You get an introduction to demographics and psychographics that you would not experience anywhere else in the universe than you would standing inside of a store. And uh, it was amazing to me because even back then and to today, you don't want me to unscrew a light bulb for you. Changing a light bulb is not what you want me to do. And... Yet, I was the top-ranking salesperson at 16 or so years old, mm-hmm. 15, 16 years old, in the entire district, and I worked part-time. That was against full, full-time full employees. So what what about you made you a good salesperson? Well, I think the comfort level I have with people, but I had this instinct about me, and I'm not I'm really not an arrogant person, but if there's a few things in this world that I'm very proud of, it's my ability to pick up on people's energy and and their personalities and be able to sell to their needs and to position things to what they need in order to be able to feel comfortable with products. I, I, I always believed, I might not have been able to phrase it this way back then, but I've always believed that selling products and selling services doesn't work inspiring and creating outlets for unique experiences is what works and what people take with that or are willing to pay for as a result of that mm-hmm. would be that power drill or would be, a, I knew nothing of power drills, nothing. But if I started talking about how it had a high torque and it did it, did did it's a professional, I sold the drill, okay. you know, and it was, it was, it was simple, you know, as, as far as I was concerned. So
0: did you have a go-to, uh, I don't know, activity, like high torque or whatever it was, like, did you have a go-to, pitch
1: i think my go-to pitch was and is that i didn't have a uh, a fictional pitch it wasn't scripted or crafted with any specific words i think it's important to state that there's only so many ways to describe torque on a drill so so Mm -hmm. there's always some script to it but it's not pre-written it's just it's the same response the same explanation Mm -hmm. you know how do you do this how do you do that this is how you do it you know that kind of thing yeah but what i I think found in the experience was that when you listen to the person's needs and align those needs with with the right solution mm-hmm. that's really what the biggest difference was and and um if, if you jump ahead i went to Comp usa a non-defunct computer store sure where i also there was the highest ranking salesperson in the entire district uh, despite being a part-time employee at times, it wasn't like it was always that way, Mm -hmm. that they recruited me as a store manager for their White Plains store. And it was, I must have been 17 or 18 or whatever, how old it was, I don't remember. Yeah, But it's just that kind of thing where I was able to understand that Black Friday is is destructive to stores, um, sales margins, profit margins. So what I would do is I would make sure I always sold that power strip with, the computer and I would be able to uh, you know compensate for that you know that, that's a really good example actually what you're asking me about with high torque I, I would I never wanted to come across like I was selling something and I always had to you know sell these warranties and extended warranties and stuff like that and through the lens of a salesperson at least at USA, there was some logic to it if you didn't know how to fix a computer uh, you know, If you didn't know how to do any of it, having a one of the less expensive packages is not the worst thing in the world because why do you want to have to pay inordinate amounts of dollars? It's not the same today as it was then. Then dropping off the computer was $200 just to drop it off. Right. So it was a you know different world. But what I would tell customers with respect to high margin items that I knew would help with sales, I went to my boss and I said, is there any reason why I can't take a thing of floppy disks, a, a surge protector and whatever other thing just put it together and charge $20 for it Now, if you added up all those different products they would equal $21 but right. look at the profit margins and the, now if there's anything on this earth I'm horrible at it's numbers I can't okay. until I met my wife I didn't know how to figure out a tip on a check I'm terrible with math so it, it wasn't that I was able to figure out the Extra dollar, but the profit margins—it's just logical to me. It just makes sense. I knew that that thing—a floppy disk—cost the company eighty cents, and they were selling it for ten bucks. So if I took a dollar off a bundle, it was still a Absolutely. amazing thing. Right. It, was still, it was still overall very good. Absolutely. So clients would say, or customers would say to me, "Well, why do I need this? This doesn't. Why do I need a power strip?" And I said, "Well, let me ask you a question. Right? you bring the computer home, you got a printer." We got a monitor, right? They go, Yeah. You might have some other accessories. Back then you bought scanners too. They say, but let's just stick with the three core things. You have a monitor, you have a printer, you have a computer.
0: Yep.
1: I don't know about you, but the outlets in my house, there's two of them. You right. got three things. How are you gonna plug them in? <laughs> right. And sometimes they would say that they have a power strip. Mm-hmm. Now this is where the conversation got a little more complicated because there's something called jewels. Inside a power strip, which simply means that you either have enough yep. to be able to handle the, the the power surge of those three devices, yep. or basically you have three power outlets that are no purpose to you with respect to surge. Right. But that's where it always came to seem very salesy to people because you're trying to push them when they've already uh, right. I already have a power strip. Yeah. You're trying to sell me another power strip. Exactly. And I but I don't need a power strip. Yeah. Great. Mind, great right. bit by this comedian John Pinette. Uh, who passed away unfortunately one of my favorite comedians he talks about how he went and he bought a tv and they tried to sell him a five thousand dollar power strip and the tv was three thousand <laughs> it, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like that doesn't work but in this right. case you're talking about a thirty dollar power strip which is not cheap yeah but you'd say to the person "Look, you just bought an a, a computer yep. that takes 300 watts of electricity and you have a power strip at home that you bought from shop for eight dollars it, it, it doesn't make sense. And yeah. what I learned from that experience is the lesson that guides me with everything that I do these days. One of the lessons yeah. in that value has to come before price. And that perception of value is unique to every person that you speak. It, yeah. it, it, at the end of the day, could we categorize the same way? could we label the same? Mm-hmm. But getting there with each person... You have to tell a different story for them to be able to identify with it and as they say with investors is that when you speak with everybody think of it as you're starting with a no and you have to convert that no into a yes okay. not that they're starting with a I
0: don't know okay. so how did you learn this Were you, did you learn this before you started working or did you learn this at work i
1: there are a lot of things that I learned that I didn't realize I learned until much later in life, and I was able to look back and be like, "Wow, that is where I learned about that." Okay. And I think a big part of what I do is um, one of my heroes is George Carlin, mm-hmm. me, and uh, he he always says, "I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking." <laughs> and <laughs> I I look at situations and I and I take them for what they are, and I say to myself. Is this logical? Will somebody want this? Will somebody do this? And until I can prove it, I don't do it. I don't never pursue anything without being able to prove that there'll be value to it and people will want to do it. Okay.
0: So, um, so is an example of how you've done that? Basically everything I do. There's a philosophy
1: or an approach in marketing called upstream marketing. Okay. And uh, downstream marketing is what most people consider when they think of marketing they think of facebook they think of you know email marketing all these different things. Mm-hmm. upstream marketing is not that upstream marketing it says i'm going to first figure out what i need to do how i need to do it with whom i need to do it mm-hmm. and i need to create the test strategies and lay them out in order to be able to facilitate the work so that way i can gauge if my hypotheses are correct okay so that's how I run my business. That's how I've run everything that I've done. And with that, I believe that the reason I'm so hard pressed with that is because simply stated, I don't want to sell people things they don't need or that won't work. And unfortunately, we live in a society right now, a professional society, where 99% of what people are on the sidelines with pom poms cheerleading about is complete nonsense. It doesn't work. It's a complete waste of time and money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things I'm most proud of is that I'm a contrarian. And really, at the end of the day, the, the, the two adjectives that I always use to describe myself are contrarian and troublemaker, because that's okay. exactly what I am.
0: Okay. And so how does that get you into trouble? It gets me to good trouble. Okay. I
1: think that's the most important Good trouble is an interesting, uh, interesting phrase. So <laughs> it anymore. is because it's, it, it's in the eye of the beholder right? It's to say that as my client, I am on your side of any argument. So I'm going to go to your agency or I'm going to go to that sales rep, or I'm going to go to that technology company and I'm going to call their bluff. And I'm going to say, "What you showed them is nonsense, or that's not true, or what's your test strategy. And if I told you the amount of times in a given week I have people look at me with this blank stare of, huh, you mm-hmm. actually want me to prove to you this works? It's it's an astounding thing. It really is. So I'm a troublemaker for these other folks. But that troublemaking, on the other hand, um, has saved companies up to one company I worked with had a 75% net income increase from their previous fiscal year. Okay, uh, They are now saving over $125,000 per year because I had one conversation with them. And what was that conversation about? Conversation was they were paying a license fee for a promotional platform um, that allowed them to facilitate sweepstakes and whatnot. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: By the way, this was not even mobile optimized, this system. They were paying a ton of money for it because it was under the radar and they were saying that they were making a lot of sales because of the sweepstakes It got people in the database, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So I look at the numbers and I say, Obviously, I can't give you real numbers while you know, making them up. It's it's to say, okay, well, great. You made $100 and you know, many more zeros sure. after that. But you made $100 in, uh, in, in sales, but the system costs you $125,000. How exactly is that a good thing for you? Right. And it's to understand that there is this, in almost every business I speak with, there is this incredible disconnect between the revenue and the expenses. And although that that seems very elementary, and although I'm horrible with numbers, it it's not a matter of numbers. It's a matter of paying attention and connecting dots. And when you do that, you realize how much money companies waste. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So what did I do? I I built a system for them. I built a SaaS platform, or a technology platform for them from the ground up mm-hmm. that they now own. So not only can they accrue the costs, but it's capital expense. Okay. And that helps them with everything from taxes to you know just the fact that they own it, and and, and with that they can resell it as a white label product. Now, it not only has driven positive revenue for them, yeah. but it has created non traditional revenue streams for them, which okay. is just a completely amazing um, after effect that I admittedly didn't even think of until it was built, and I'm like you know, go sell this to other media companies go ahead and do it <laughs> so now are you are you a coder did you
0: build the code for it or did you pull together pieces and pull, no things?
1: what i call my from a title perspective i give myself a marketing technologist mm-hmm. and uh, i'm not a fan of titles as a whole because i think we all play different roles and stuff but harvard business review kind of came out with an article a few years ago that talked about the marketing technologist and i and i it really stuck with me because what it what it says is you have IT on one side of the business. Mm-hmm. You have marketing on the other side of the business. Mm-hmm. But in today's world, you need technology to support marketing. It's not just your Microsoft Outlook anymore and you can't figure out how to log into your computer or right. service. It's, it's a lot more detailed than that. Mm-hmm. So from an interactive standpoint, I used my experience with technology and my experience with marketing and my love of human behavior and, and, and marketing um, um, automation Just have conversations and whatnot. And I put those puzzle pieces together and I said, this is what I want to do. So you ask if I'm a developer. No, I'm not. But I have my core group of developers. And what I do is I come in and listen to the business's challenges, identify the challenges they don't even realize they have, and I put the puzzle pieces back together again for them. And then I lead the development and the documentation and uh, get that off the ground. There was a book a couple of years ago uh, that came out that was called The Other Side of Innovation. Mm -hmm. And what was important about this book for me is that it talks about how you have a core business group. Yep. And when you need to innovate, what they found is that most companies, when they try to innovate, fail. Um, And... The majority of companies overall don't even bother, despite what it means to their comp- to, to be yeah. competitive. And if somebody doubts that, you know, go look up um, a Kodak one day or, or the, the old Xerox. And the, These are companies that didn't even bother trying, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they wind up getting uh, pummeled. How it works is that you keep your core team intact and you bring in a innovation team or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. that facilitates this growth. Because what the core team's good at is their day-to-day jobs. They're good at what they do every day. They're terrible at doing new things. They don't want to do it. It creates infighting, and it it ultimately leads to failure almost every time. So you bring in somebody like me, who I come in, I'm not a threat to the existing team, because I will sit down with them, and I will talk to all of them, identify their strengths, their weaknesses, and all we do is fill in the gaps. Either we train them on certain things that they'll ultimately have to use in new system, but we don't ask them to build the systems. We work with them in understanding their unique proficiencies when it comes to interacting with technology. So that way we understand, should that be a button or should it be a text link? Should it be? Mm-hmm. So that level of granularity to me is the difference between excellence and mediocrity <laughs> Nice,
0: nice. Um, okay, so why don't you tell me about a time where you, where you demonstrated that excellence?
1: There, I'm I'm proud to say there's there's, there's many. Uh, One of the uh, things I had to do once is work on an e-billing system, uh, electronic billing system, for a company where the average age of their subscriber was over 60 years old. So if you think about the average 60-year-old and then you say, okay, well, we need to get them to start using electronic billing. It's not always the best of situations. Right. Now, when you add a layer of complexity that within that demographic group, there were several different languages that we had to consider. That's another facet of this that's very important because it was, you know, from a marketing perspective. Again, as a marketing technologist, I'm not just building the technology, but I'm building the strategy around it and then facilitating it. So we needed to get these folks to be uh, involved. So what did we do? Well, the way that they had estimated the financials on it was that they were hoping to get between, I think it was 12 or 14 to 18% conversions of people onto e-billing. And the result of it would be that the company saves a lot of money in postage, it saves it in printing. Because right. the, they're,
0: no, they're no longer sending statements, they're right. now sending an email or something else. Exactly. That draws you in, person pays online right away. Absolutely. And so before I'd gotten
1: there, they tried things like letters in from the editor. They were even printing. What do you mean by
0: letters from the editor? What does that mean?
1: Oh, Well, it was a publication. So the editor would write, "Uh, you know, we invite you to change over to our... And, and that was the most ironic part to me is, is like a complete disregard for demographics to say, we invite you to, okay, great. Thank you very much. You know, invite me to a screening of an opera in, you know, Italian. I'm going to go, that's okay. Have a great night. I'm going to go watch Seinfeld. You know, like, that's, right uh, it's not of interest to me. So what I came up with was a very simple idea. Um, we created an app on uh, iPad and instead of asking them via any other means than in person, we took away the the, the threat or the intimidation. So what we found was, they didn't mind being on e billing. They minded needing to actually facilitate the change of going onto the website and filling out a form and hitting a submit button. Okay. It's not that it was threatening to them; is they didn't understand how to do it. Okay. The late adopters of technology are getting better with this. I think Amazon's helped with that dramatically. They're more comfortable purchasing things online and, and whatnot. But I think back then, Amazon was certainly not as popular. And it was an amazing thing to say that what we did was we took a street team, we knocked on doors, and we asked them to uh, make the conversions right there. And, and, and uh, they signed on the iPhone, iPad, and that was it. Done. So interesting.
0: So let me let me pause you there for a second. So you had people actually knocking on folks' doors and saying, Can I have some personal information and click this button? And that was actually that actually worked. Yeah. Um, we had um, again they were uh, I think I can't
1: remember if it was twelve or fourteen to eighteen percent conversion, rate I mean, they were hoping for. We had a thirty eight percent conversion. Okay. And but
0: just the fascinating thing to me is I, what what time period are we talking about? Is this what like what year ish? I would uh, 90s, no, early 2000s. Since iPad, so yeah,
1: 2010 or 11. I can't remember. 2010 or 11 around there. Uh, okay. Might have been 2013. I'm terrible with numbers. I told you.
0: <laughs> fair fair <laughs> enough. right? And, and somehow I just asked if iPads were <laughs> in the 90s, so we can we'll maybe we'll edit that part out. Um, but uh, it's just interesting to me because I would think if somebody came to my door and said, "I know you're a customer of Business X. Will you please put anything on this iPad?" I am sending that person away as fast as I can. Say you, if, I will call the 800 number, I will go to the website, but I am not going to have some stranger come to my door and I'm not giving them any information. Like That's that, to me as a security. that's The problem you know, I have yeah. is that is it, it, it speaks volumes to
1: the exact, if you don't mind me saying, uh, issue that I see with most marketers. And I, I say it comfortably to you because you're not a marketer, so I don't feel like I'm insulted. And even
0: if you were, <laughs> even if I were, it doesn't matter. I, because
1: when I speak to clients uh, or potential clients, and when I speak with – I speak at colleges a lot, and I uh, to, to marketers and graduate classes and things. And one of the as things like – As like a
0: guest speaker yes, or, yes, you a not, guest. or teaching a full course? No, I wish
1: I were. Because okay. uh, they won't let you do it without a master's, and I, I find that hysterical because – some people that I've met with masters, some of the stupidest people I've ever met went to Harvard. So, I, <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's crazy. But I think life experience is is, is not uh, at all um, a priority by schools, and it should be. It's, it, to me, that's more important than the fact that they got their doctorate 30 years ago, and they're going to teach how to market products today. I just think that's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the... Um, what was I talking about?
0: But... <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about... <laughs> The fact that I said, uh, we'll, we'll go back, yes. right? right. You're, you're with me. I'm with you.
1: The thing is that when I go to these schools and I'm talking to these classes, I ask them the same question. I'll ask you the same question. And I know what you're going to say before you say it. And that is, how do you make a
0: pizza? How do I make a pizza? Yeah. All right. Well, so first I got to go out and buy all the ingredients that I need. Okay. okay. Right. And beyond this, now we're getting... What are some to, of those ingredients? What, what, what are some of those ingredients? So the funny part is, of course, I don't know. For me, I go to the freezer section, I buy a pizza, and I, then I go <laughs> in the oven. But okay. if I was actually making a pizza from scratch, I mean, I assume I need... I don't know, so dough, whatever's in dough. So so right. flour and water, right? Well, I guess I'm not buying water. I'm turning the, <laughs> turning the faucet on, to be fair. right? I'm buying flour, I'm buying sauce, I'm buying cheese. Right. I'm probably buying, you know, sausage or pepperoni. I'm right. probably not buying anchovies, i got to be honest. It's <laughs> definitely not buying pineapple, although that's a constant fight with my 15-year-old that uh, she I, desperately never wants pineapple that pizza. Yeah. But, uh, so I'm, I'm buying those things. I'm buying a... Um, a little pan that mm-hmm. to put it on so it breathes and whatever that whatever that is so I don't want to put it right on the right on the oven rack right. um I, I, I don't know how technically you're going to get to me. I'm buying electricity. I'm buying you, an oven. You've, right?
1: ar- you've already said enough in exactly what I knew you'd say. And that uh, see, I was me... trying really hard to not say the
0: stuff that, you, that I was that I, like everybody else. But I guess I'm just, you know, <laughs> I am not a contrarian, unfortunately. No, you've just shattered 40 years of, of thought of mine.
1: Oh, now I feel great about myself. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> no what, what it comes down to is, is is the answer you gave. It's not that I'm psychic. It's that it's, it's the most common answer to what is a simple question, but I look at the world through a different lens. Okay, Okay? So when you ask me about going to doors and and I would never think that that was good, I say uh, one of my key things, I believe the only way you find disappointment in life is to live it with expectations. And I've challenged other people to prove me otherwise. If you take expectations off the table, which... People say, ah, come on, it's ridiculous, because it's that ingrained in you. But if you could get that out of your head, you will never be disappointed again. Think about it. Name
0: one instance where you, right? right. But th- that's fair, except that if I put, you know, chicken and cheese and pasta in the oven, I'm not getting a pizza. So how do I, want, how do I make a <laughs> but, pizza without see, making that's, a plan? But that's,
1: that's not an expectation. Right. You know it. Right. It's not like, it, you know, it's, okay, a, fair it, enough. it's not. A, the other word I never use is assumptions. First of all, most people, when they use the term assumptions, mean hypothesis, but they use the term assumption because I guess they don't want to sound like an SAT nerd. But the fact of the matter is, most of the time, it's not that they're saying the wrong thing in description, but they're associating with the wrong word. Because assumptions, to me, almost never happen. And if you think about the difference, you're never really assuming something. But let's go back to what you just said, right? Mm -hmm when you knock on someone's door yep. and okay you have what an expectation or an assumption or both yep. of what they're going to say in response to you
0: well i think to your point about you know 38 percent, maybe that's the right maybe that is that it would be an assumption or a hypothesis i mean i know you said you don't do math right i spent a lot of my my career doing math and doing right. models with assumptions and are really hypotheses and you know there's a range of outcomes i'm expecting so what i expect 0% of people to say yes? Of course not. I would have said, and, and is it possible that you know it costs you a buck a door when you average it out over time or 50 cents a door? And so if you got to 12%, that would be great. That might be fine also. The fact that it's 38% would have been far beyond any assumption, hypothesis, expectation right. I ever would have come so, up with. So let's yeah. take it
1: a step back. Where'd that 12 to 18% come from? That wasn't an assumption nor was it an expectation. It was based around the expense of executing this marketing strategy and to say, by doing this to profit or to break even or to profit, we need to reach at least 12%. So when I say that they wanted to reach 12 to 18%, it's probably better to say they needed to reach 12 to 18%. And so they would come to me and say, can you do it? Right. I said, I have no idea. So yeah. without getting into the whole story, because this was over a long period of time, we first tested this. And by testing it, you reduce the risk and therefore you make it a much more viable solution. That's why we felt comfortable moving forward. Ultimately, is because our test proved to be very successful. Okay. So going back to the pizza though, right? We never assume, we never expect. What I do when I think about a pizza is I think about the wheat farmer. Okay. And I think about that wheat farmer pulling the wheat, grinding down the wheat,
0: mm-hmm.
1: turning it into the flour by bleaching it, right? Mm-hmm. How is that How is that flour refined? Did they use double O flour? Because that's the highest quality flour that exists, and, but it's only available in Italy except for one company that imports it into the United States. Mm-hmm. And then I can think about the tomatoes being harvested. Okay. Well, where did they come from? Were their pesticides used? Yeah. How sweet are those tomatoes? Were they ripened at the right time of year? Mm -hmm. Because now I'm thinking about my pizza, and I'm trying to think about how it could be the best pizza. Any chef would tell you, any good chef would tell you, the number one consideration, other than cleanliness, Mm -hmm. that matters with food is freshness. Okay. Marketing and business, to me, are no different than that. So if you're going to go and you're going to just say, I think 60-year-olds are not going to answer the door, that's going to be the most ridiculous thing. What you've taken away from yourself... Is the ability to think deeper than that and say, you know what, I'm going to explore every intricacy, every detail that comes before the details, every ingredient before the ingredients Mm -hmm. to see what makes this up and see what's been done before. What hasn't been done before? Can I survey and find out what people are going to need and how are they going to respond to it? And that's exactly what we did. We knew that there were more active uh, subscribers than others because these are the ones that entered every sweepstakes or called in forever. So we didn't feel uncomfortable calling them and saying, hi, you've been subscribed for 30 years. Can I ask you your opinion on something?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we did that and we created sample sets and from there the test strategy and that's how we knew that we would get people to answer those doors. Interesting. Okay. So for me, no assumptions, no expectations. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a – one of my heroes is a gentleman named Jerry Tobio, and his website's Creative Group.com. I have to plug him because the man is a genius. He is the best sales trainer that's ever existed, and I say that with an absolute knowing I haven't met every sales trainer on earth because it is impossible for someone to be better. But uh, <laughs> This is high praise. Exactly. High praise, yeah, yeah. He's, he's the man. And what he – taught me and trained me on and um, some of my peers is on when you're brainstorming get that person out of the room who's going to say no because I don't care if you tell me that we're going to get unicorns to fly around the sky and drop you know um, twinkle dust on people when you're in a brainstorming session everything gets written down because you know what you're going to find out you can't get a uniform but that twinkle dust is a hell of an idea so long as we do it this way Got it. And that's why it's going to always put every idea down. You're going to just be able to refine it down from
0: there. Okay. And that's what we did and led to that success. And that's what led to that. So somebody, even if you didn't drive an assumption or a hypothesis, even if you said, I don't want to hear about it, somebody had a guess as to what percentage of people <laughs> were going to knock and say yes on the door. Somebody had to. There's some, there was some, before anyone gave you money, because we this is a good-sized company, yes. right? So somebody had to, uh, to say... I believe we're going to get X percent. Was that? Did someone? Was there a number? And, and what was it? Do you remember? We, in my department, how
1: I ran it. and Not that I ran it; my bosses were my bosses. But I mean the capacity that I ran it. Whenever I would propose something to the higher powers, yeah. it was after having worked with a finance financial resource again. Because I'm so bad with numbers, I, I knew that I couldn't do it. Yeah. But I. But I. What I did understand was the logic. Okay. And I was able to say, "Look, I don't want you to prove this case because I want you to prove it. If you disprove it, that's fine too. But I want you to prove to me that we can, either way, um, take the time to explore this as an option. And so, what it, mitigate the risk for me, so that way I can scale slowly, and get this to either prove or be uh, be proven or disproven." So when you ask what is that success metric, I I, I challenge that and come back to you and say, I don't look at the world that way. I just don't. I look at the world through let's prove and disprove every little nugget Mm -hmm. and from there feel comfortable moving forward or not moving forward. What what I think is misleading about that though, because you and I are talking and we're going through this slowly, Mm -hmm. is most businesses today will say that will take too long. That's too much effort. Why are you going so crazy doing that? Is that- mm-hmm. Differences? Cool. Yeah.
0: Success versus mediocrity. Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with that. But I, but again, having worked in large companies for most of my career, if you asked for, I don't know how much money that costs. Let's even say it costs $100,000. If I want $100,000 to hire street teams… Someone's gonna ask me, am I gonna get a hundred thousand dollars worth the value out of this? Am oh, I gonna get three hundred thousand I, I dollars? So how you're... did you so that, that's part of the question is how do you get them to say Well that that I understand and yeah.
1: it's, but but that that's the same numbers. And in other words, I derived at those numbers I, let's just say twelve to eighteen percent. If I have some reason I have fourteen in my head, but let's say twelve to eighteen yep. percent. That's the number I gave them. Okay. because what I, what I explained to them is look, I'm mitigating your risk here because I'm comfortable based off of our testing that you're going to make at least your money back okay and is there a risk there yeah but mitigated risk because i it's not like i just went out and tried something yeah in contrast you have these companies paying tons of money yeah. one of the things that pe- people just don't understand until i explain it to them is i would never spend a dime on social media marketing i would never pay a dime on paid search, nothing, not a single cent. I'm not saying search doesn't work, I'm not saying social media doesn't work, but I would never pay a dime for those things. It is literally impossible to make money doing it that way. And someone might say, it's ridiculous that's
0: extreme, prove me wrong. Okay. Yeah. so that brings me to a question I knew I was gonna ask before we got here, which is, yeah. so this is a new podcast, this is episode six. How would you promote
1: it? Exactly as you have, I mean, you got me here, right? Yeah. Like I said, I'm not saying don't use social media. For some reason, people hear what they want to hear. And yeah. when I've talked to others, they go, what do you mean don't use social media? I didn't say that. But Mark Ritson, who is a professor out of uh, Australia um, or New Zealand, he is one of one of my heroes. I have a very small handful of heroes. For some reason, I've brought up most of them already. But Mark is a professor and uh, someone I'm very proud to say that I've had close communication with. And what he has you can look him up on youtube but he's talked about is he uses bad language though i'll just warn you about that he (laughs) talks about the fact that um if you look up and i challenge people to do this all the time go to marine webster's website right type in the word social write down the definition type in the word media write down the definition Now, just for the sake of grammar Flip Mm -hmm. the two sentences or the two descriptions around. Mm -hmm. And the literal, it reads like a sentence. Mm -hmm. It says a conversation between people, essentially. Okay. It does not say a conversation between companies and people. Because that's not its intention and it doesn't work. And within the world of contrarians, he and this other gentleman, um, Bob Hoffman, who is, uh, they call him the ad contrarian because he's very similar uh, philosophies with this. What, what you derive at is that it is, it is laughable when people say that they love a company. They don't. You know, I, I'm not talking about a person on the street. They could say whatever they want. But when marketers say, we have this many people who love our company, people <laughs> don't love brands. They don't love companies. It's complete nonsense. It doesn't exist. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. People love other people, right, which is why celebrity endorsements and things work, right? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. So you, you say, well, how do you make this podcast successful? Mm-hmm. Nothing is without test strategy. Nothing is without first creating those uh, situations where you have hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And being able to determine, are you your best advocate to be able to grow your network and create viable growth of your of your program? What 10-second snippet can you take from this that's not bait, but rather promotion and exciting and saying, I want to learn more about this. And when I the uh, uh, I won't um, give the whole title because it, it, there's a bad word in it, but uh, the, 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 the speech um, from Bob Hoffman, who I just mentioned, mm-hmm. is, is called The Golden Age of Bull. <laughs> now, if you saw a headline called that, you'd go, huh? Let me read this. <laughs> right. And when you watch his speeches or read his writing, it really gets to you because it's backed by data and backed by statistics. And it's really an amazing thing. You know, I, I once asked somebody, who who listens to podcasts? Who are these people?
0: Yeah.
1: And, and you know what that was? That was an expectation. That was an assumption. And I caught myself and I stopped myself. I said, I have no idea either way. So why am I defaulting to nobody does? Because I don't. Right. That's not a fair answer. Let me go look at the math and see what the answer is to that. Until you do that and understand the profiles and who you're trying to target and realize it's all about storytelling and conversations, Mm -hmm. you'll never grow anything. Got it. So who did you find that listens to podcasts? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny that you asked that because... I don't watch a lot of comedians, they're just a handful that I like, mm-hmm. but someone had told me that the comedian Bill Burr has a great podcast, mm-hmm. and um, and it's almost embarrassing to admit, because I am a technologist, and I've built enterprise-level SaaS systems, yet I had to Google how to access a podcast. I had no idea. I'm like, where do you even <laughs> listen to a podcast? <laughs> okay. So And you told me this new name, uh, uh, Stitcher, today, which I never heard of, but I get mm-hmm. a pass on that, because I have an iPhone. But um, yes. But yeah. In in iTunes, um, you look up Bill Burr, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you have this like viral component because it says if you like Bill Burr, you'll like these.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I always like when people use data in order to improve relevancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the number one goal of every, any good marketer is be as relevant as possible, timely. Mm-hmm. And that got me to listening to other. Um, comedians on there. And, 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 so you uh, started with
0: Bill Burr, you, you went over to Never Not Funny or some other comedian podcast like that, I, think. I I did, but then I said, I wonder if Bob Hoffman's on here. So I put Bob Hoffman and I,
1: I wonder if Ritson's on here. Yeah, there was a two-part uh, interview with Ritson from some podcast in Australia that how would I have ever known about that? The right. war
0: for Bill Burr. I mean, think about. that. That's, that's, I'm sure that is a very narrow slice of people who are looking for both, but very interesting. But what Plus, it yeah. does is
1: it goes back to my one of my original points, mm-hmm. is that a unique experience was created for me, and I, I went into this little funnel mm-hmm. of an experience that brought me into to everything my my own way, okay. and that's the way that marketing works best is when. You hand the keys and say, "Have a great time." And we've created an amazing playground for you.
0: Yeah, that's how it works. And I, you know, that people talk about getting into the dark hole, right? Of the uh, of the black hole, I should say, of YouTube or of of iTunes, where you listen to one. And I certainly am guilty of this. I've certainly had times where I'm like, "Oh, let me just watch this one video." You know, it's eight o'clock. Waiting for I'm waiting the the ten minutes so my shows will be a little ahead. Yeah, I don't have to watch the commercials. So let me just watch a couple YouTube videos. It's eight o'clock. Great. And I look up and it's twelve thirty. Oh yeah. I said, what, "What what just happened there?" Somehow I went, and, and it usually is exactly what you're talking about. You start with a with a comedian, or start with whatever you're starting with. Yeah. Right. And where I end up at at twelve thirty is, it would be hard pressed to find that no one's designing that path. Yeah. Right. There's no there's no marketer sitting there going, "Okay, we're going to start them with a comedian. We're going to move them over to a pub- to a you know public speaker." you know, a marketing public speaker. We're going to take that turn from there. We're going to get into old movie clips mm-hmm. and somehow we're going to end up with, uh, you know, wherever, wherever I might end up that night. hundred percent. But you know what the you know, a good marketer is doing What's is that? they're looking
1: at all those things you did look at, look at and they're creating a profile on you. And they're able yeah. to create many of those profiles. And now they're able to say that this demographic group is interested in... Um, raunchy comedians <laughs> and yep. is interested in... I'm definitely in the core of that uh, demographic All right. group. <laughs> so well there's there was a, a great quote a couple of weeks ago uh, someone said to me just like um, uh, YouTube is the best thing that ever happened to Charmin and to Scott Tissue because <laughs> men are spending so much more time in the bathroom because of oh, because YouTube, they're, because they're <laughs> and uh, I, I actually think it's a funny uh, yeah. marketing opportunity that I would love the opportunity to test. I'd love for someone in Charmin to call me and say, "How could we use YouTube in order to promote?" I, I think that that is a missed opportunity. Yeah. I don't say that based off assumption. I say that based off hypothesis because I have enough right. information to deduce that between my friends and I and my <laughs> network that yeah right. our wives wonder where what happened to us where'd we go
0: <laughs> right see i would see now my assumption would be that's more the candy crush king company that's probably profiting from that's driving Charmin sales more so than youtube but that's see, an interesting hypothesis that's where assumptions don't work because yeah. candy crush
1: and and, and king uh, skew much more to the female side which doesn't play interesting into my hypothesis interesting so, there, you yeah. see what i uh, Well,
0: <laughs> fair, very interesting. Um, not not a place that I uh, – not a place I spent a lot of time making assumptions uh, you know, around So around But it is where we Sharna do our products. best thinking. It is. It is well, it, it probably <laughs> used to be. I would argue that it probably used to be where we do our best thinking because now we are distracted there the way we are distracted everywhere else in our lives. Like, there's no moment where you shut down and you leave the phone behind. Yeah. Right? You, know, you you want to have a, you want to have a very fun exercise to do. Of course,
1: this won't work on a weekend, Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. Test your friends. Okay. For every eight text messages you get,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how many of them were sent to you from the back? <laughs> I'm serious. Okay. Yeah. And find out the answer. Yeah. And I I find it to be a very interesting test. Because the, I'm not going to tell you my numbers because I want you to just find out for yourself. But you, yeah. you will
0: be blown away. It's a, it's a very funny, if they're being honest with you. It's right. a very, very funny thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So really the product we should be putting together is some sort of phone sanitizer. <laughs> that would be very, very, very cool. <laughs> very lucrative, right? You know, install them in lots of places and... Well, you know the Dollar yeah. Shave Club? Have you heard of that sure. company? Amazing
1: success. Disruptive in every way. But one of the best things that they did. It's amazing how my friends are going to say, yeah, of course you brought it to the bathroom. But no. Um, what's, what's, what they do is when you receive your, your, your uh, monthly allotment of blades, mm-hmm. they include a little booklet. And it's it's basically, I forget what they call it, but it's like reading for the toilet and okay. it's literally intended to be short snippets of funny facts that have everything to do with the body's digestive system or whatever random guy thing right and it's just enough to read for you to go to the bathroom and and it, to me it's it's a, a great way to to create a dedication to a brand because it, in a sense, because it's, it doesn't really make me dedicated to the brand. Ultimately, I have no relationship with them. I don't really care. But I think it's kind of gitchy, and I do think it would be a great way to refer somebody so you've got to get involved with this thing. This is mm-hmm. the funniest thing in the world. Not only are their blades great, but you get this really funny thing that comes. I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't really hurt anything, but it's cute, right. and it's a
0: nice It makes people product. love the company. No, you don't <laughs> can love a company. That's not not. <laughs> uh, excellent. So, alright, so you've spent a lot of time talking about companies, right? So have you been spent most of your career working for other companies or? I,
1: I have. Uh, I, I, I've worked mostly with media companies and uh, entertainment companies. Um, I, I have done a lot with marketing agencies mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think that the role, I've never once been hired to do exclusively the role that I was hired to do. It's never happened. Okay, uh, I always wind up doing other things and I think part of it is because my, my core proficiency when I really started out was email marketing. And uh, although we talked so much about sales experience in high school, I hate sales. I, I, I hate it. I, I have nothing to do with it. And what I hate about it is is not the interactions with clients. I love that. I love the interaction with team members. I love that. What I hate is you got to make this much commission. And if you don't make this much commission, you're going to lose. I, I, I can't base my life around whether or not I made my budget number, you know, this week, or I'm going to owe the company money. You know? <laughs> so, how, so, yeah, well,
0: well, so let me ask a question though. So how do you deal with that as a business owner? Because now it's not, you don't get your commission. It's now you don't pay your mortgage. So how do you deal with right with that pressure?
1: That's, you know, you, on, on, on on your questionnaire that you, you ask, what is the one thing that I...
0: Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that. But that's okay. We can speak But get that. To that's your, that's yeah. the answer. Okay.
1: If there's one thing I could take away from my, my day and my week, mm-hmm. it's the the clerical uh, aspects of the work or or really the sales. It's hard to say the sales because it's not the sales that I object to. It's the, you know, uh, what's the budget number we must hit and da 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 da, da. Right. I like to do the work. Okay. I, I, and
0: that's what I like to do. And anything that's a distraction from that, I, I detest. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So I, which I totally get, but so you, you talked about having plans somewhere somewhere along this process, right? So when you were getting ready to make the leap to start your business, did you have a plan or did you say I like to do the work and the money will come?
1: I what I had was a, a reputation. You know, I, I had enough of a reputation where I knew that I could call upon certain people and get at least one sale to keep me afloat till I got my second sale. Mm-hmm. But after you got my sec- after I got my second sale I had no time to find my third sale, and I had no time to do the billing for the first two sales. Okay. But you get to this point where, at least for me, where you you can't quite afford to add more people financially. Yeah. But you also can't afford not to add more people operationally. Now, you could go get a small business loan, and you could start and go in that direction. But the reason I didn't do that was because I didn't at the time have enough of a clear definition as to exactly what the heck this was. Mm-hmm. Because literally all I was doing was going in and shaking up organizations and and, and uh, you know creating technology, and then I was out of there. It yeah. didn't feel like a very it didn't feel like a business. It just felt like a consultancy. This is what I do. I'm going to go around. Here. Mm-hmm. But what I found now is um, I'm in a similar position where. I struggle to scale because what I really need is is almost a co-founder to, to help me take that part of the business away from me, make it their problem. <laughs> I say that with the middle. Yep. So I can I serve the companies. And by going into a business, they're able to explain our process, which I'm happy to explain to you. Yep. And from that process, bring me in when the time is right. Because it's, it's it's not that I don't want to. It's not an arrogance thing. It's that I don't have the time to. I'm right. I'm busy doing what they'll want me to do eventually for them. Okay. So I just don't have the time. So I'd like to be able instead to you know to, the, the, the prospect of commuting to the city for a meeting mm-hmm. means two hours or so that I don't have to spend on something I have
0: to do today. Got it. It's the options not there. So so how do you strike that? How do you strike that balance? Uh, frankly, I don't. Um, yeah. frankly,
1: where I'm at right now is I need, I need people yeah. to step up and say, let me help you get over the hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, I see potential here to make money on the back. I'm not asking them to invest dollars, rather sweat equity, which of course is value. And I don't take away from that, but to understand that the sweat equity I'm asking for, this is not a, uh, uh an equity situation. This is not, this is purely yeah. Let's see how far this can go before we worry about any sort of a formal agreement there, and just get this thing off the ground. And that's really kind of where I've been looking to go, you know. And from a sales perspective, we get one really big client uh, next, and and
0: we'd be right back where we are, where it's like, okay, I, I have less time, <laughs> right? When I already didn't have enough, <laughs> right? So are you are you going in spurts then, from very busy to like, are you? Kind of working and then selling and then working and then selling, or is, are you able to actually it, sell the next one while you're working on this one?
1: i, I what I can't do is sell as effectively uh, as convincingly uh, in, in a sense, and i I don't say convincingly because I'm talking them into something. one of the one of the things someone else that I really look up to, guy kind of named Sammy Simpson's always taught
0: me is that you never mm-hmm. call somebody's baby ugly. That's it. The first half of our season one finale is in the books. I hope you're enjoying it so far, and we'll be back next week for the exciting conclusion when we hear more about why you shouldn't call someone's baby ugly, and so much more. For a link to Brian's webpage, as well as all of my guests' pages, you can check out my website, www.dontwaitleap.com, and you can follow us at Facebook and on Twitter at Don't Wait Leap. Have a great week, everyone. See you next time.